Hello everyone. Welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrinath Rao, your host for this program. In a world driven by differences, there is a remarkable degree of consensus about the baneful impact of climate change. Enlightened segments of the global population are deeply worried about global warming and the impending catastrophe coming in its wake. Climate change is no trifling matter. Left unchecked, it can upset the even keel of life, as is evident from weather-related disasters unfolding across the globe. It is common knowledge that global warming is responsible for profound weather changes, rising sea level, melting of glaciers, ocean acidification, permafrost thawing, and repeated incidents of floods, droughts, and wildfires. The most distressing aspect of climate change is that it overwhelmingly affects vulnerable populations in the developing world. Marginalized populations in advanced nations suffer no less. Climate change has uprooted communities, caused colossal damages, and pushed people to lives of penury and insecurity. It has also damaged biodiversity irreversibly. Global warming has gravely affected over a million species and degraded 60% of the world's essential ecosystem services. According to the recently published sixth assessment report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, human activity-induced warming is accelerating faster than previously predicted. Sounding a red alert, the report warned that the world is set to reach the 1.5 degree centigrade level within the next two decades. It emphasized that a more drastic reduction in carbon emissions is necessary to avert an environmental disaster. Because released carbon dioxide remains in the atmosphere for tens of thousands of years, climate experts ever that unless we find ways to halt the fossil fuel emissions that continue to elevate the Earth's temperature, the long-term stability of human society is imperiled. Galvanized by the magnitude of the challenge, the global community has unveiled a slew of initiatives under the aegis of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to check global warming. This international body, whose mission is to prevent dangerous human interference with the climate system, sponsors regular climate-focused summits that have led to major international treaties such as the Rio Declaration in 1992, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, and the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. Notwithstanding the brouhaha, international accords have made modest progress in limiting global warming to 2 degrees centigrade. Experts estimate that we need to cut our global average carbon dioxide emissions per person per year from about 5 tons per year to 2.1 tons per year. This figure masquerades the fact that a wealthy nation like the United States produces 20 tons of carbon dioxide per person per year. 
Thus, we must reduce our carbon footprint tenfold, a distant dream if the present trend is any indication. While it is true that wealthy countries loathe compromising their living standards, that is not the only reason we lag in our climate goals. Climate change is a frustratingly complex issue, a so-called wicked problem that defies easy solutions. Macro-level interventions have not helped. Pinning hopes on initiatives at the individual level is also fraught with challenges. For most people, climate change is an invisible, distant problem whose cause-effect relations are obscure. People do not associate carbon dioxide with pollution. To the untutored, limiting global warming to 2 degrees centigrade seems trivial. Addicted to our fossil fuel way of life, we labor under the illusion that it is easier to treat the problem than prevent it. Contradictory scientific information and enormous financial, technological, and political factors favoring the status quo further complicate matters. Most importantly, since an eco-friendly lifestyle does not result in immediate, tangible rewards, most people think climate mitigation is beyond their ken and capacities. The crucial question, therefore, is how can we get people to appreciate and tackle the devastating ramifications of global warming? A new book, Minding the Climate, how Neuroscience Can Help Solve Our Environmental Crisis, published by Harvard University Press this year, offers scintillating insights to address climate change. Its author, Dr. Anne-Christine Duhaim, is a senior pediatric neurosurgeon at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. In addition, she is Nicholas T. Zervis Professor of Neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Duhaim argues that to comprehend a reluctance to engage in pro-environment behavior, we must look inward at how our brain operates. She posits that influenced by its evolutionary design, the 86 billion neurons and 10,000 synaptic connections of the brain work exclusively for rewards. It is vital to understand how we make decisions, and how the reward system function influences them. According to Dr. Duhaime, the brain's reward system bears the imprint of external and internal influences, and its main drivers, aside from social rewards, are agency and goal-directed behavior. The brain thinks in patterns and is designed for short-term decision-making. While emphasizing the centrality of the reward system, Dr. Duhaime is careful to point out that it is not deterministic or hardwired and predictable from genes. Instead, she says, the reward system is fluid and interactive with what we encounter in the world. The brain is malleable. Its plasticity also shapes our behavioral choices. 
Another issue Dr. Duhem highlights in her book is the role of biophilia in arresting environmental degradation. Biophilia is the idea that humans are innately drawn to and comforted by being in nature in the presence of vegetation, natural landscapes, and animals in addition to other humans. Building on this insight, she wants to set up a green children's hospital based on biophilic design principles. Dr. Duhem identifies several features of modern life that have exacerbated climate change. Chief among them is her addiction to consumption and her obsession with social media. What draws us to these habits, she says, is that the rewards are instant, predictable, consistent, and frequent. While advocating eco-friendly choices, like switching to a fuel-efficient car, avoiding unnecessary air travel, and embracing vegetarianism, Dr. Duhem maintains that they become palatable only when they are more rewarding than the alternatives, appeal to people's sense of altruism, valuation of non-human species, sense of personal responsibility and agency, religious views, and so on. She prescribes positive reinforcement and nudging strategies to enable people to adopt a sustainable lifestyle. Dr. Duhem reminds her readers that mitigating the climate crisis is not easy since our choices compete with ancient neural tendencies that push us to want more tangible rewards. It requires, she points out, multiple solutions, mass participation, and a conviction that the rewards for pro-environmental choices often are limited to those we give ourselves. Dr. Duhem joins me now to discuss these ideas. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Duhem. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. It looks like a fun conversation. Indeed, it will be. Let me begin with something concerning your personal background. You are a pediatric neurosurgeon and you have written a book on climate change. What drew you to this topic and why did you write this book? Yes, it seems um, odd, doesn't it? Uh, even to me. Um, <laughs> pediatric neurosurgery is a career that is immersed in the brain mm -hmm. and it's immersed in the brain of children. Children are an extraordinary model for brain development and brain function. And in my field of pediatric neurosurgery, we come at brain function through the lens of uh, treating it when it's dysfunctional. So we get to see in a really rarefied and privileged way how the brain operates throughout the lifespan um, from infancy through adulthood. That fascination with the brain was the underpinning for my career choice, but the fascination with how things in biology work uh, is also part and parcel of that career choice. And even early in my decision-making about my own career directions, I was always drawn to nature, drawn to understanding how things work, 
um, why things are the way they are, why we behave the way we do. And those same principles led me into neurosurgery. The exposure to neurosurgery um, influenced my ability to have a little bit deeper understanding than the average person of how the brain works. And my research on brain plasticity further influenced this. So I think all of these threads pull together. So it isn't so far-fetched to have pivoted from one direction to this direction of climate change, which really threatens our entire biology. So if you love one, you love the other, right? Well, let's now move to the first very interesting point you make in this book. You say that the planet is 4.5 billion years old and humans emerged 200,000 years ago. And in the very first chapter, you point out that in the last 200,000 years, the human brain has continuously evolved. You place the evolution of the human brain in the context of the Earth's uh, uh, history from its inception to the present time. And you have done this in an ingenious manner. You've pictured it as a 40-day walk from San Francisco to Times Square in New York. Can you tell us more about this and explain its significance? Sure. Let me show that picture. I had some students when I uh, did a fellowship at Radcliffe Institute at Harvard um, several years ago, and I tasked them. So I want to give them some credit for coming up with this way of visualizing this. I wanted to show a timeline that put these concepts into perspective because I really didn't understand it either. So what we see here is a map of the United States and the students came up with the idea of making San Francisco the beginning of the earth and New York, uh, New York uh, Times Square right here. And you can see these little footprints going across the United States. Now, whenever I talk about this, people say 40 days, you couldn't walk across the country in 40 days. But in fact, if you plot it out with Google Maps and you never rested and never stopped and never slowed down, that's what it would take, 40 days. So why did we do this? Because I wanted to try to show what it is about brain evolution and this problem of climate change that is built upon, our brains are built upon our past. I wanted to put it in perspective. So here in San Francisco, the earth begins. Mm -hmm. The first signs of life, single cell life, starts in Salt Lake City. So between here and here, life began to, you know, have its building blocks and life was thought to start here at, um, you're about 698 miles from Times Square here. It's going to take you 30 more days. You don't get to multicellular life until Iowa City. And you don't get to, to mammals until you're in Morristown, no, I'm sorry, Scranton, Pennsylvania, right here at this dot. Ma um, uh, primates are in Morristown, New Jersey. And you don't get to humans until here. You're just outside of Times Square. So our brains and how our brains work are shown at the top of this figure. This is a single cell organism, and this is a multi-cell cell organism. Some of the ingredients that go into how our brains actually function 
started way back here millions of years ago. And then when we get to mammalian brains and primate brains, things get more sophisticated, more complicated. And then the human brain, where humans start, you only have two and a half minutes till the present time, the center of Times Square. So now let's turn our attention to the climate. And during all of these eons prior to human beginnings, there were carbon fluxes. On this graph, we see CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere over time. And this time frame is aligned with this, these last you know, steps to the present time. And these are the kinds of carbon fluxes that went on for you know, millennia. And then here we are at the present time. The la- and we'll blow this up further. The last step of your 40-day walk occurs at the center of Times Square. And now we have blown up this carbon. Uh, you can see it condensed here and expanded here. And the Anthropocene, that is the time of, of human influence on the planet in terms of atmospheric carbon, doesn't happen until your big toe hits the last step of the last step of your entire walk. And here that carbon is skyrocketing up to, uh, this was February of, of 2022, it hit about 420 um, parts per million. So you can see that during all this time, carbon was fluxing around a relatively narrow margin and only in this point of time. So our brains were evolving and the, the mechanisms by which our brains function were evolving all the way back here. And this current problem only happened when the big toe of your last step hits the ground. And the point to this is that this is what we were designed for. These conditions are what we evolved for. This has happened too recently to affect how our brain works. And this is the point that my students and I were trying to make in coming up with this uh, timeline. Interesting. One of the main premises of your book is that our brain bears the imprint of evolutionary design and profoundly influences our current choices. Can you please tell us in layperson's terms how the brain is set up and how evolution impacts our choices today? I could spend hours talking about that, so (laughs) I'll try try to condense it uh, as best I can. And I do want to say my expertise is in neurosurgery and and to to a lesser extent in my research in brain injury and plasticity in childhood. So this was somewhat new to me as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I came at it as a, as a, you know, an educated lay person in many ways. Although early in my career, I did study the reward system um, as an undergraduate and a little bit later in my career as well. But there are people who have much more expertise than I do. So with that caveat, what I can say that was fascinating to me as I delved into this is it's an extraordinarily well-designed but very complicated system. And to put it in perspective, our brains uh, of adult humans have 86 billion neurons. That's a staggering number of neurons. And as you mentioned in your introduction, each of those neurons has on average, about 10,000 synaptic connections, meaning it's getting input and communicating uh, with 10,000 other cells at any given time. And the reward system started way back, its underpinnings go way back to those single cell organisms that we saw in the middle of the country on our timeline. 
And how does this happen? How do, how do decisions get made? Well, at the simplest level, at the single cell level, they get made because it just so happened that during evolution, single cells that happen to develop molecules on their surface that could act as what we call sensors, enabled cells to change their behavior, even at the level of a single cell floating around in a soup somewhere, changed their behavior based on things they encountered in the environment. And the fundamental principle of how that worked is that these sensor molecules have the capacity of changing shape when they encounter something in their environment. That change in shape under the right evolutionary conditions allow other molecules to enter or exit the cell. So they act almost like doorways or gates. And when they encounter something in the environment, they change shape, something is allowed to enter the cell or exit the cell. And that thing that enters or exits changes the mechanisms that also happen to co-evolve in that cell. So that, for example, a bacteria can have almost like a Rube Goldberg-like reaction with all different chemical interactions such that something in the cell or on the surface of the cell can create motion that moves the cell towards something attractive like a sugar or a, or a food. And conversely, in other evolutionary changes, something that the cell encounters that's toxic like ammonia or some bad chemical can make that chemical reaction because of things that are allowed in or out of the cell to create motion away from the toxin. This is the very beginning of behavior in relation to interaction with your environment. And over time, as evolution created multicellular organisms, and you know later, as we saw in the timeline, uh, uh, mammal brains and primate brains, these same principles were expanded upon so that these changes in shape of certain molecules became what, what we now use as neurotransmitters that connect to cells, that allow cells to change their interaction with other cells. And the principles that guided which ones lasted, which ones became incorporated and passed down genetically from generation to generation, were based on their advantages for short-term survival. So our reward systems were designed not to be rewarding, not to give us a reward, a pat on the head, something <laughs> to make us good. They were designed, it's almost, a, it's almost a semantic conceptual difficulty because we think about reward as, you know, I'm going to get a chocolate bar. Yes, that is rewarding. But in the evolution of the reward system, what we call the reward system, rewards evolved to teach us to facilitate learning about what was most efficient and um, most expeditious to help us survive. So the reward system was designed to help us make short-term decisions that ultimately proved to be uh, the most beneficial for our short-term survival and reproduction. That's why it exists. And it evolved over eons from simple organisms all the way to our present time. Um, and it is predisposed to making us, to facilitating behaviors that supported our short-term survival at the time that evolution occurred, which is way before the Anthropocene, way before our present difficulties with climate change. 
Let's now move on to a point you made earlier, and this concerns the brain's plasticity. And you say that the brain's plasticity and the reward system, they work in tandem. Can you please first tell us about the brain's plasticity, how it's related to the reward system, and the relationship between the two? Sure. Plasticity is the concept that says your brain constantly changes. And we think of it often uh, in my field in respect to the fact that children are particularly plastic. That is, they are designed to learn. They are set up to learn. And what many people don't know is that children have many, many more brain cells than we have as adults, not just because of aging and loss, but as a program of nature. Children have many, many more brain cells than they end up with. They prune them at several uh, uh, times during development, particularly there's a large pruning in adolescence. And the idea is that you don't know when you're born which connections you're going to need. You don't know whether you're going to need to learn Sanskrit or French. Mm -hmm. You don't know whether you're going to need to learn how to shoot a bird with a slingshot or play the violin. You, your, your brain doesn't know which of these skills are going to be needed. And this concept of plasticity is that your brain has the capacity to strengthen certain patterns and pathways. Uh, just moving, just talking, just thinking, just almost anything you do is an extremely complicated pattern that occurs with billions of neurons and millions of synapses firing at any given moment. And the ones that you use a lot become stronger. That's what learning is all about. Plasticity includes the physical changes that allow this to happen. The physical changes that allow you to remember what you were taught in first grade. The physical changes that allow you to learn to text with your thumbs when you get a smartphone. Um, the physical changes that allow you to recognize someone that you met a few weeks ago. So all of these things um, occur through this, this principle of plasticity. Not only is it things you think and things you do, but it's attitudes you have and it's values that you have. These are learned and these are strengthened with repetition. So what we value and what we find rewarding is also malleable and plastic. However, we have certain predispositions that we inherited. Certain things happen more easily than certain other things because of the way the brain is already connected and how many neurons have been through evolutionary design assigned to certain tasks, um, how, how things are connected to make plasticity easier or more difficult. So, um, the reward system is related to plasticity in that plasticity is an inherent um, principle uh, and ingredient, say, functional ingredient in how the brain, human brain works and the brain of other uh, animals. And the reward system, while it has predispositions, uh, it also is involved in this plasticity and can be changed. Just so I understand you correctly, uh, Dr. Duhaim, is it fair to assume that the brain's plasticity can override its uh, evolutionary uh, setup? Is that fair to say? It can within limits. 
So there are certain things you'll never be able to do. You know, um, you may be able to learn to walk on your hands with Uh enough practice and if you have the right genetics, but most people are never going to learn that. (laughs) All right. So, so with enough practice, we can do many, many things, but not all of us can do everything. Um, Likewise, the influences that make something rewarding include a strong genetic component. There are certain things that most of us find rewarding because we all inherited that tendency. However, under certain extreme conditions, our uh, subject matter for what is rewarding, what it is that we find rewarding can be altered dramatically. Mm -hmm. One of the examples in the book was... um, a study using functional MRI that showed that in some patients that were tested who have the condition anorexia nervosa actually found going without food rewarding on a brain level. Now that's an extreme change. Most of us are not going to be like that. Most of us are not going to have the genetics, the life circumstances, all the things that our brains respond to with plasticity so extreme that something as basic to survival as eating becomes um, the opposite of rewarding. So yes, things can be overridden under the right circumstances, but some things are more difficult than others. And when we get to the conversation on climate change, the point I think is that many of the behaviors that got us into this problem in the first place are somewhat difficult to override, but it's not impossible. Let's now move on to another point you make about the brain, uh, and this has to do with its recognition of patterns. The brain works in patterns, and this is what helps us to learn and enables us to survive. Now, how is this implicated in climate change? What's the relationship between our ability to see patterns and the climate disaster that we are dealing with now? All of these things are related when you think about it in terms of how does your brain process information, change, learning, and reward. So when we think about our brain thinking in patterns, what that means is the way you learn is to associate things. And we are extraordinarily good at making associations so that One of the examples I use in the book is you're walking down the street and you get a glimpse of someone down the street and your brain makes sense of that sensory input by comparing it to a stored pattern in your brain. And so many events happen because of that recognition. Uh, The example I use is you think it's your grand for a moment, you think it's your grandmother But it can't be your grandmother because she died years ago. Or you think it's a friend who moved to another part of the world. But for just that instant, your brain recognizes similarities and jumps to that conclusion. And if all the other things that are associated with that person you think you recognize are positive, you really loved your grandmother, all sorts of events will happen. Your face will light up. Your mood will be lifted for a moment. And you say, oh, and then you realize it's not my grandmother. But for that instant, the complexity of neural events that are triggered by part of a pattern that you recognize and is looped into your emotion, your memory, facts you could come up with about your grandmother, 
that's what I mean about your brain working in patterns. We are extraordinarily good at recognizing patterns. And with respect to climate change, one of the things uh, that has to do with patterns is that these are so new for us that we have trouble with them. The, the patterns that we only learn from cognition and are totally new, like I shouldn't eat meat because I read somewhere or I heard that, you know, too much meat is bad for the planet. That's a harder pattern for us. It's not in our experience. It's not in our collective experience. We get the information only through a stranger, someone we don't know, some disembodied voice on, on a radio or a computer. And it's harder for us to um, make sense of or incorporate some new things we have to learn when it's just information from someone unknown that's a stranger who's not necessarily an authority figure that we trust, these are more difficult to change. And part of our difficulty with dealing with new information that is somewhat disconnected from our collective experience is that those patterns are a little more difficult to form and to react to. I have one last question about the uh, reward system. You say it's not deterministic or reductionistic. Uh, it is uh, dynamic. It uh, interacts with uh, our experience in this world. Now, if that is so, then uh, what is the implication of this malleability uh, of the reward system for climate change? And this is a tough question because it, 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 that whole issue is really the crux of the matter, isn't it? Because what many people will say is, Humans just won't change. We can't give up things. You can't expect people to do without. Uh, you can't expect them to change things that they find rewarding naturally um, because it's human nature. So human nature is an expression that's used by people to say this is how people are. They're greedy. Uh, they're self-centered. Uh, they're um, comfort-driven. And they can't change. I set out to try to understand at a neural level how changeable we actually are. Is that true? This human nature, this is hardwired, we just can't change. And one of the examples that I came across uh, was really um, uh, kind of astonishing to me, which was the way that people perceived cats in different cultures and at different times. How do, we, how do we get our opinions about what's rewarding? And one of the examples I use in the book is that in Europe in the Middle Ages, there were beliefs that were promulgated largely by religious leaders, but, but there were probably many cultural reasons for this, that cats, domestic cats, were mm -hmm. evil, that they were, <laughs> they, 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 they were the devil lived in them. And, and people, including children, one of the big entertainments in the center of town would be these, I, I almost hesitate to say it, but I'm going to kind of soft pedal it, these, these cat torturing events. Uh, and I'm not going to describe them too much because they really were, by our modern standards, awful. Mm -hmm. But people thought that this was entertaining and it was wonderful. And why did they think that? Because they were convinced because of the teachings of people that had great authority in the community that the devil was in the cats and that if you, you know, 
hurt the cats, you were hurting the devil. This is the concept of human gullibility. And I don't mean that in a derogatory, uh, critical way, but humans evolved to, in part, be very um, attuned to social approval and to the belief of what you're taught by authority. This had this had survival value. If you were about to, you know, go poke at a beehive and you're a four-year-old child and your grandmother or grandfather says stop, and you didn't know to stop, and that didn't that that was not kind of predisposed to be attended to. That someone in authority telling you stop, we wouldn't have survived. So this idea of gullibility uh, is, is an idea that what you find rewarding, what you find positive, is heavily influenced by social influences and by the teachings that you're raised with and even get later in life by authority figures. So when we say malleability and the reward system being malleable, that's an example of how many things go into what we find rewarding. Many of them are social and learned, and it therefore can be changed. So are you suggesting that our brain is to a considerable extent conditioned by forces beyond us which have an impact on our decision-making? And if so, what do you make of Freud's idea that decision-making takes place in two ways, one of them is automatic and the other one is where we are more conscious. How does this happen? Yeah, I think that's a very uh, common understanding, but I think it's simplistic. That is that you have a, a, a fast jump to conclusions decision-making apparatus, and then you have a slow deliberative one. And this has been popularized in the popular press. And it certainly jives with our our intuitive experience that we can think things through or we can jump to conclusions and that jumping to conclusions can lead us astray. Um, I don't think it's quite that simple, although I recognize the value of that concept. Uh, Your decision-making is happening whether you know it or not all the time. And it's a, it it involves millions of events that are changing on a second to second level. So when you make decisions, you are bringing in all sorts of things that you're not aware that you're bringing in. I use the example of a politician making a decision about a climate bill. Mm -hmm. And that politician's decision, I'm making this up, but (laughs) could just as easily be influenced by a movie that she saw last week. And, you know, the fact that her kid was late for the school bus this morning and, you know, who her campaign donors were and who complained to her most recently about job losses in their community. All these things are weighing on that decision. Some of them you can bring back to verbalize and be consciously aware of many of them, including genetic influences and what we call epigenetic influences are happening at a level you can't access. But the millions of events happening all the time belie the fact that there's a quick and a slow decision-making process. Your decisions are a continuous evolution every second. And the way you're predisposed to vote at that moment when you have to make that decision is influenced by many, uh, many, many events, past and present, um, that most of which you you can't even describe. Let's now turn to the brain and biophilia, the idea 
that we are drawn to and comforted by nature. Now, the scientific evidence about the salutary impact of biophilia is mixed, as you point out in your book. Uh, while there are studies that uh, affirm uh, biophilia, there are others who, uh, which are skeptical. So what's the relationship uh, between biophilia and climate change? Do you see a role for it in mitigating the climate crisis? Many people have said, if we really cared about nature, why wouldn't we save it? It seems illogical. If, if humans are so drawn to the natural world, what is our problem? Why can't we just value it enough to save it? So I found that a very interesting concept to explore, this, this concept of biophilia. And it's a hypothesis. It's very difficult to prove or disprove. So the way that scholars have gone about it is to look for corroborating evidence, corroborating evidence, what seems to support it and what doesn't. And many people who care about the environment care about it because it really has an influence on them. They, they really are passionate about it as a cause and as um, something worth defending. But uh, again, the problem, one of the problems is a, not everybody is the same in that regard, and B, wanting to protect the environment and the actual behaviors needed to avert climate change don't seem to align directly. That is, changing what you drive and loving trees. It's like, is that connected? Emotionally and, and from a neural point of view, they seem quite far apart. And this is part of the problem with why people even who love nature, have difficulty sometimes figuring out what behaviors they should do to protect nature. It's one thing to say, I'm going to protest and I'm going to stand in front of the tractors that are going to cut down the trees. I mean, that's quite direct. That's quite easy to process. But I'm going to have one less plane trip this year in order to protect nature. That's a much longer leap for us. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I learned in my exploration was that the rewards of biophilia neurologically are processed quite different from immediate rewards of other types where the dopaminergic circuitry has been worked out in more detail, like buying something or purchasing something, um, getting something new, getting money, getting a promotion, getting um, a compliment. All of those things are processed quite short term. When one looks at nature, what people have shown using functional MRI imaging, for example, is that um, people respond brain-wise to images of degradation of nature, trees cut down or pollution mm -hmm. or, you know, um, dried up rivers or landscapes. Uh, they do seem to have a distress reaction to this, but it's just below uh, the reaction people get from looking at, on average, looking at animals in distress. So this is part of our biology, our, our, um, our reaction to things, but it's not the same immediate positive reward. It's more like a soothing or a calming reward that we get. Uh, and so it's, it's a different, probably a different strength than a different circuitry than immediate tangible rewards like money or a good meal or a mate under the right circumstances. So um, it, it does play in, though, to certain individuals for whom 
this is a really important big part of their lives. And so because we talk about the uh, the attempts to mitigate and adapt to, but primarily mitigate climate change, um, there will be some people for whom this whole concept of biophilia will be their gateway into pro-environmental behavior. But it has to still be learned behavior uh, because it's somewhat indirect in terms of their trying to protect nature directly. You have uh, come up with an idea of setting up a green children's hospital based on biophilic uh, design principles. Can you tell us about that, please? We sure. Short of time, I must tell you. So if you can please okay. keep your answer brief. I sure will. This was a test case uh, to try to see if I could, if we could, our team could, uh, develop pro-environmental behavior, encourage pro-environmental behavior um, by people in a leadership position in an organization. And the Green Children's Hospital idea was that we would develop, uh, I felt like our institution needed a new physical space for kids. And this would be both really outstanding in terms of um, environmental design, that is energy efficiency, low toxicity, and so forth. But it would appeal to people, even if they weren't into the whole concept of climate change being part of our mission, uh, because it would be beautiful. And biophilic design is a concept that says the building, the interior spaces will be so full of nature that the rewards of nature that you get from the outdoors will also be on the indoors. So the idea is that in a hospital, this would be healing. In a children's hospital where there is extraordinary stress for families and children, mm -hmm. this would be soothing. And that this would be both environmentally uh, a prototype and also uh, really over the top in terms of the inclusion of nature indoors in the design itself, what people would experience within the building. Dr. Duham, you say that some behaviors are easy to change and others are harder. And you've discussed strategies in your book for changing behavior. You have emphasized positive reinforcement, nudging, and the honeybee strategy. Can you tell us more about these strategies and how they can help us change to pro-environmental behavior? Yes. I looked into public health and difficult behavior change in the medical field for a template for what has worked and what has worked less well to change difficult behaviors. And then I was curious about what had people tried specifically in the realm of pro-environmental behavior. And what I learned was that Obviously, there are many difficult behaviors, but I focused on addiction, which is one of the most difficult, and overeating, which is in some schemes thought to be a form of addiction. And then we also talked about behaviors that have become more common in the modern world that are analogs of addiction, but they are behavioral addictions. And that includes things like video game addiction um, and to some extent shopping addiction. Uh, internet addiction to certain activities on online. And what's been interesting about this is that they all have common principles. They all have principles of that reward system gone awry, which is a, which is a descriptor, a famous descriptor of um, classical drug addiction. The way it works is this. When you become addicted to a substance 
most addictive substances work by overactivity of the dopaminergic system in some way. So you are getting artificially boosted reward via a dopamine or dopamine analog that is associated with your behavior. Now, in, in normal life, once you learn, remember that the reward system is designed to help you learn what it is that's important to survive. So what happens in addiction is instead of once you learn that reward goes away and frees you up to learn the next thing you need to know to survive. Once you've learned where the berries are in the field, the next thing you need to learn are where is the apple tree. So you that becomes additionally rewarding because it's novel. And once you learn it, now you've learned it. And now you don't have to have all that dopamine uh, happening every time with the unexpected reward. But in addiction to a substance that acts like dopamine, the behavior never reaches the learned stage because it continues to be associated with this strong pulse of dopamine. And over time, what um, the brain compensates for that by um, the thing becoming less rewarding, but doing without it becoming more and more unpleasant. People have looked at behaviors like video screen addiction and internet addiction because it's similar. The behavior becomes compulsive over time. And how do you change these difficult behaviors? What people have shown is that the most effective way to change these behaviors, which are very difficult, is associate new positive rewards with an alternative behavior. So positive reward has been shown to be more effective than negative reward for most people in changing behavior. And substituting positive reward for an alternative behavior is the mainstay of most recovery programs in addiction. Now, when you look at environmental, pro-environmental behavior changes, the same principles have been shown to work. That is, by associating positive reward with pro-environmental behavior, that works much better than just telling somebody they should do something. That doesn't work very well. And the problem is that in many people's minds, pro-environmental behavior change means doing without something. Well, I can't eat meat, but I like meat. I can't I can't, you know, buy the car I want. I have to get like a car I don't like because that's the right thing to do. I have to, you know, turn my thermostat down. I have to buy less and consume less. All of that is not rewarding. It's sort of the antithesis of reward. Doing without is not very rewarding. So what has worked best in pro-environmental behavior changes are substitution. You don't have to have no car. You can just have a different car. You don't have to take no trips. You just have to take fewer trips or get there an alternate way. You can substitute social rewards um, for other kinds of rewards. And, And if people are working with you and you're all working for a common cause and you're actually making a difference, the reward of agency is extremely powerful. So in difficult behavior change, including pro-environmental behavior, um, substituting different positive rewards, nudging behavior, which means making the pro-environmental choice an easier choice, like opt-outs instead of opt-ins for certain energy um, mixes, getting the the greener energy as your default option uh, instead of something you have to work harder to do. Uh, these kinds of changes have been shown to actually move behavior in a, in, a, in a desired direction for society overall. There can be ethical issues with that and social engineering issues raised. 
the honeybee approach says, it doesn't matter what you think about the environment. This is just going to be a more fun choice. So a good example of that is a Tesla. A Tesla is an electric car, but it's also really cool. So people that buy Teslas may buy it for an environmental reason, but many of them buy it because it's just cool. So that's the approach. That is, it's rewarding for totally non-environmental reasons, but happens to have a hidden environmental um, benefit. So these are some of the behavior changes that have been shown to work, and the book goes into this in much more detail. Okay, I think we have very little time, but I have two quick questions. You discussed several strategies that individuals can pursue to mitigate climate change. Uh, And you also say that we could, for instance, uh, scale back on our consumption and things like that. But making this change is not easy, is it? I mean, I might, for instance, um, at at an intellectual level, appreciate what you're saying but actually refraining from buying and things like that, embracing simplicity, for instance, is not easy. What concrete suggestions do you have for people who are convinced and want to make the change, but are waffling? First is know which change is most important. And for people watching, if they're new to this field, you can go online and just type in carbon calculator And you can figure out which of your own behaviors as an individual matter the most. However, it's important to realize that your behavior affects not just your personal life, but if you are a manager in a company or the CEO of a company or the director of a division in a business or a hospital or a school or you're an educator, your influence can be much larger. So recognize that your behavior has a sphere of influence that is beyond your individual life. Number two, recognize that for all the reasons we've talked about, making a choice to do something pro-environmental will not feel rewarding in the same way that eating a fancy dinner will, or having that chocolate dessert, or getting a promotion, or getting a hole-in-one on the basket uh, on the on the golf course or a, a basket in the on the basketball court. None of these things feel. Um, none of the none of the pro-environmental behaviors that you make will feel as good because you won't see the effects. It's not the immediate connection. Uh, foregoing something like a, like a plane trip that really isn't necessary, the only reward you're going to get for that is a cognitive reward or, if you're lucky, a social reward from someone who is like-minded. It's not going to feel the same and it's not going to feel as rewarding. We haven't evolved our brains to that level yet. Nonetheless, you need to know intellectually how important that decision is. And you have to override the fact that it just doesn't feel gut-wise as rewarding as alternative behaviors, that it's still important. And you have to reward yourself or find a like-minded person and group that will reward you socially. We are completely out of time, Dr. Duhem. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us and being with us today. I appreciate your ideas and insights and I applaud you for writing a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thank you for joining us today. In the coming weeks, we will discuss Professor Stein Ringen's How Democracies Live, Power, Statecraft, and Freedom in Modern Societies, 
published by the University of Chicago Press this year. In this book, Professor Ringen offers powerful insight on the meaning of democracy, including a new definition and how countries can improve upon it and make it function more effectively. He argues that democracy must be rooted in a culture that supports the ability of citizens to exchange views and information among themselves and their rulers. Watch out for an exciting discussion in the coming weeks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.